0: Good morning, Seaside. It's always a pleasure to to be here with you and have the pleasure and privilege to be able to bring you God's Word this morning. So um, if you would pray with me, please. Father God, thank you for life. Uh, Thank you that we could gather as your people to worship you. We pray for anyone who does not know you, that they would leave knowing you, and those who may be hurting in different ways that they would be ministered to today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of my favorite stories growing up is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Did you know it's been adapted to film 135 times? Uh, I've watched several versions of it. I've never been disappointed. Many of you are familiar with this story. The main person being Ebenezer Scrooge, this elderly businessman who Stubbornly refuses to acknowledge the holidays specifically Christmas because Christmas is a time of giving and charity and Being giving and charitable was the last thing Ebenezer Scrooge wanted to to be because he was a miser and although he was Extremely wealthy. He didn't care about the needs of those around him Not his employees not his neighbors. He didn't have family Then his former business partner, Jacob Marley, shows up as a ghost, warning him that he's going to be visited by the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future. And each of these spirits are going to show how his callous indifference negatively impacts the lives of those around him. And as a result of these visits, Scrooge is then transformed, becomes a gentler, kinder, more generous man. And so many people love this story, and it can be told and retold throughout generations because we know inherently that there's something wrong about being indifferent towards the plight of others, especially when you have the means to make a difference. It's wonderful that somebody like Scrooge's reform changes his ways, becomes kinder and more generous, and he sees his wealth as a means to uplift the quality of life in other people, and he finds joy in it. It's a wonderful story. And our passage today has the same core lesson, namely that cold and callous indifference towards the plight of those around us is wrong and sinful and does not reflect the heart of the Christian, nor does it reflect the heart of Christ. However, unlike A Christmas Carol by Dickens, this doesn't have a happy ending. The main character doesn't reform. There's no rejoicing at the end. There's only judgment. That judgment is permanent and irreversible. So let us take heed of this warning passage. We may not have the spirits of Christmas to warn us, but we have something far better. We have Moses and the prophets and the very word of God. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, and we'll be reading from verse 19 through 31, Luke 16. And as you're turning there, a quick outline. So you have from verses 19 through 21, you have life. Verses 22 and 23, you have death, which comes abruptly. And then from verses 24 through 31, you have the afterlife which is the majority of this passage. So Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they may warn, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the first thing before we get into the passage is answer the question, well, is this a parable or a historical event? Did this really happen, or is this another illustration by Jesus? Because answering that question is going to impact our interpretation of this passage. I'm going to take the position that this is a parable. It's an illustration. It didn't actually happen. I'll give you my reasoning throughout the passage, but first, an argument that this is an actual historical event is that it doesn't explicitly say that it's a parable. However, the introduction in verse 19, there was a rich man, is similar to how parables begin. And also, this rich man has the same negative association discussed in the previous parable of the dishonest manager at the beginning of chapter 16. So then if it is a parable, then it's meant to be taught through a comparison of a hypothetical situation to everyday life, much like the Good Samaritan. So let's get into the details of the passage. Verse 19, you see this rich man's wealth is described in his fancy clothes and how he eats. He's not given a name, unlike the poor man, but is left anonymous. And I think this keeps the story generic and focuses on the theme rather than a specific person. There's a bit of an irony going on here that the main person in the story is the unnamed rich man and not the named man Lazarus. So read with me in verse 19, there was a rich man. Was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. So here, Jesus described this man as clothed in purple. Now, I had to slog and read through a lot of historical stuff of imported material from other countries, uh, mucus glands used from sea snails from the Mediterranean Sea to create this purple dye. Look, all you need to know is this is really really expensive, okay? That's all you'd need to know, okay? I didn't come up here to narrate a documentary. I came here to preach a sermon. Man, it's just boring stuff. If you're fascinated by this stuff, that's great. I have plenty of friends who are nerds. He goes on and he says, fine linen, so clothed in purple and fine linen, which is probably referring to his undergarments. So not only is this rich man have expensive clothes, but he has expensive underwear. Then moving for what he wore, Jesus then describes how he eats. That is sumptuously. Now, this doesn't mean cereal for breakfast and a baloney sandwich for lunch. No, sumptuously, extravagantly, lavishly, in complete luxury. We're talking Alaskan king crab one night and filet mignon the next, maybe followed by a Godiva chocolate cheesecake for dessert, perhaps salted caramel maybe lemon raspberry cream, maybe an Oreo extreme, perhaps. I'm just reading off the Cheesecake Factory menu here. (laughs) You know how highbrow I am when I read sumptuously, I think, ooh, Cheesecake Factory. (laughs) And here he says he's feasting. You know, this word feasting is normally occurs, used only in, in weddings or major celebrations. So life was a party for this guy. Every single night, this rich man indulged his every desire. He had a life of comfort and splendor, and he used his possessions to indulge himself with everything this world had to offer. And here in verse 20, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores, So here, we have a named person in this parable, which is the best argument that this is an actual historical event that happened, because Jesus never names anybody but any other parable. This is the only parable that he gives somebody a name. So if I take the position that it is a parable, why would he give this person a name? Well, three reasons. I'll give you three reasons. First, uh, giving this person a name helps facilitate dialogue that happens later in the passage. Second, it's actually a contraction between two Hebrew names, uh, Lazar and Eliezer, meaning God helps. His name is literally God helps, which fits the theme of this passage that God helps the lowly. And finally, Lazarus, who's given a name, was not recognized by people because nobody helped him or acknowledged him. But by giving him a name, God recognizes him. And it's very intentional on Jesus' part to use this hypothetical person and giving him a name shows not recognition to a specific person, but to a class of people. And it shows the heart of God that he is near to the brokenhearted. He wants to uplift the downtrodden, the lowly. And here, Lazarus is very poor and is this place of complete destitution. And he was laid there at the rich man's gate. So he was placed there by others, and we could probably infer that Lazarus was crippled. He was placed there. He couldn't get there himself. Furthermore, the next part of the verse says the dogs came and licked his sores, which adds to this idea that Lazarus was immobile because he couldn't get away. He didn't even have the strength to shoo them away. And lying at his gate, he was hoping to receive some food, scraps, garbage perhaps, anything. And even though he didn't experience any success, he didn't have the ability to get up and go somewhere else. Wow, this person's not giving me anything. Maybe I should try my luck elsewhere. No, I don't think he could have done that. So here, this word gate is this Greek word pylon, which is usually used for entrances of cities and palaces and temples. So this rich man is depicted in living in this mansion. So this imagery here is a contrast between two economic extremes. You have Lazarus was poor, hungry, homeless, without any clothes because the dogs were licking his swords, crippled, severely suffering, hungry, while the rich man ate sumptuously every day, lived in a mansion, clothed with fine linen, was able-bodied, and lived this carefree life. Now, it was popular theology back in Jesus' day, and even today, that material riches are a sign of God's stamp of approval. It was a sign that you were living a righteous life and you're at the bottom rung, economically speaking, you were somehow unrighteous or it was your fault that you're in this predicament. So perhaps they may have looked at Lazarus as God's judgment and that's why he's in this predicament. If you go back in the Old Testament and think about Job and his friends, Job being very wealthy, not only materially, but also relationally, wife and many children, when all of that was taken away, his wealth, his family, his health, what was the assumption of his friends? Well, is clearly, it's your fault, Job. You must have sinned. He swore by his innocence. That's why even Job was perplexed at what he was going through. So the underlining assumption there is uh, suffering is a result of sin. New Testament example, John 9, when the man was born blind, the disciples had asked Jesus, did his parents or did he sin that he was born blind? Jesus said, no, neither were, were uh, in sin. He was born blind so that God may be glorified. What's the underlining assumption of his disciples? Well, suffering is a result of sin. So here, the prosperity gospel, it's nothing new. That wealth and health is a sign of godliness. That You kind of reduce God to this slot machine. If you have the say, good faith levers or, 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 or prayer levers, God simply gives you what you want. That's not the case. And here, the next part of the passage is to shock the audience by showing that Lazarus ends up in heaven, taking this theological idea and blowing it up. And not only is he in heaven, but he's at Abraham's side. And the next shock is that the rich man is not taken to heaven, but is placed in Hades. So now the scene drastically switches. Both Lazarus and the rich man die, and death, is the great equalizer. And at death comes this eschatological reversal. Read with me in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Notice the contrast in imagery there. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, the realm of the dead was called Sheol. And Sheol, in the Greek, uh, in the Greek uh, equivalent, is Hades. And this is where we get the word Hades. The Greek word for hell is Gehenna. Now, I don't want to get into the differences there or parse out the different stages of hell. I think that would distract from the main point of the passage. But for our purposes today, I'm going to use them as synonyms. I'm just letting you know that I'm aware that they're different words. So then, the rich man is in hell and is also in torment. Hell is eternal judgment. So he looks and he sees Lazarus at Abraham's side carried by angels. See, notice this imagery, carried by angels. This is an expression of care and comfort. Lazarus, who had absolutely nothing, now lacks nothing. And the role of the rich man and Lazarus are now reversed. Lazarus goes from being this lonely sufferer, this beggar, at the rich man's gate, in complete destitution, now at the very side of the Jewish patriarch. The rich man had everything. Anyone could have ever wanted in this life, but now loses everything and ends up in hell. And in the end, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs eleven four. Death reduces the rich man's status. Wealth no longer counts for anything. And in verse 24, And he called out, Abraham, Father, or Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the ends of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So here the rich man is suffering, makes an appeal to Abraham asking Lazarus for help. And I think mentioning Abraham here is a result that this is primarily to a Jewish audience now if you back up in this chapter back up to verse 14 16 14 it says the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed them and they said to and he said to them you are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God okay in verse 14. Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things. What are all these things that he's referring to? Well, you back up further to the beginning of chapter 16, uh, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and talking about the parable of the dishonest manager. And after giving that lesson to the disciples, the Pharisees overheard, started mocking him and ridiculing him. And then now Jesus turns his attention to the Pharisees, and that sets up this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, exposing their hearts of being lovers of money. And the rich man is a parable given an example of what valuing worldliness is, expensive clothes and fine dining, over the caring of people right in front of you. And it's detestable before God. And citing Abraham here brings uh, Jewish heritage back in the forefront pointing to the patriarch who started the covenant between God and Israel they hear this small request by the rich man a drop of water on his parched tongue he didn't ask for a bucket a glass a hose just a drop of water for some relief and this shows he knew Lazarus and if he knew Lazarus he was aware of Lazarus needs And just like Lazarus hoped for mere scraps off the table, here the rich man is just hoping for a drop of water, but won't receive it. The difference now is that the rich man's fate is sealed. There is no hope of reversing it. The request is denied, and Abraham explains why here in verse 25. And Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. You know, interestingly here, Abraham addresses the rich man as a child. It's actually a term of affection and endearment. He's not harsh with him, which reminds us the heart of the Lord, that he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven. It also reminds us that not every child of Abraham, his physical descendants, will enter the kingdom of God. It's those with the faith of Abraham, regardless of their ethnicity, who will enter the kingdom of God. And here Abraham then explains the reason for this denial of the request that he received your good things and Lazarus' bad things. What's going on here? That's an interesting reply. Is this karma? Reciprocity? No, see, this reversal that the rich man did not provide What Lazarus need, and now Lazarus does not provide what the rich man needed. See, the rich man's extravagant wealth and lack of compassion on earth is a reflection of his spiritual poverty. And if you're spiritually impoverished, you will receive no mercy in eternity. He is reaping what he's sown. In other words, if we solely pursue a life of comfort and luxury for ourselves during our time here on earth, instead of loving and caring and serving others, then earth will be the extent of our enjoyment and eternity will be our hell. But if we live in a way where God is truly the treasure of our hearts, no matter what happens here on earth, the bad things that happen here in our lifetime will be the extent of our torment and eternity will be our heaven. For the believer who's placed their faith in Christ, this life is the worst it's ever gonna get. For the non-believer, This life is the best it's ever going to get. Then verse 26, and besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So see, this gulf marks the finality of death and emphasizes it's too late now. This great chasm is unbridgeable, and no amount of human effort could bridge that gap. And once you're in eternity, it becomes uncrossable. Death is permanent and irreversible, and the rich man accepts this fate and immediately moves to another request, and the request to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them. And here in verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, least they also, lest they also uh, come into this place of torment. So here the rich man shows concern for his brothers. This is the only redeeming quality this person has. It's the only first time he's shown that he cared anything other than himself, anybody other than himself. He doesn't want his brothers to suffer the same fate, which implies his brothers are probably living the same sinful lifestyle. Abraham also denies this request and says, hey, your brothers have Moses and the prophets and they should listen to him. They should listen to the scriptures. The rich man disagrees and says again, but no, if you show a special sign, some signs and wonders like a resurrection from the dead, surely they'll believe and repent. Abraham repeats what he said, that they have the scriptures. And if they don't believe the scriptures, A resurrection won't do anything. And here in verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should rise from the dead. What's at the core of the rich man's argument, right? Well, the core of his argument is the scriptures are not enough. People, specifically his brothers, need something more than the word of God to truly come to repentance from their sinful ways. And that's something more is here, some or a miraculous sign of somebody coming back from the dead. And that's exactly what the world believes. He's not reformed. He hasn't changed. The world believes the scriptures are not enough and that you need something supernatural, signs and wonders to confirm that the Bible is actually true. Certainly a miracle like a resurrection is a sign that people would believe. Which you probably know where Jesus is headed with this, and this is a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection. And even after Christ's resurrection, there's still people who did not believe. And Jesus prophesying the future, his immediate future, if you go all the way back to Luke 9, when he set his face towards Jerusalem, he's been on a mission ever since to fulfill what Moses and the prophets have been proclaiming for centuries. And here Jesus casting the Pharisees as this rich man who claimed to believe Moses and the prophets, yet were still lovers of money, lovers of this world, did not show evidence of saving faith, regenerate faith. Okay, so we're through the passage. What are the implications of the passage here. Well, two broad strokes, really. Life now and life later. This present life and the afterlife. What we do in this life, specifically in how we handle our resources and money, impacts eternity. So cold and callous indifference towards the needs around us doesn't reflect the heart of a Christian. Doesn't show evidence of saving faith. So then, be compassionate. Know there's a cost to our Christianity and be committed to the Lord because there is an afterlife. In the afterlife, we must believe the sufficiency in God's word to save. So have confidence in the word of God and care for the loss. Evangelize because judgment is real. Judgment is real. So let me take the first one, compassion by being generous. So to be clear, this parable is not against rich people. Because the rich man wasn't condemned for being rich. no, he was condemned for being callous towards Lazarus. Abraham was one of the wealthiest persons in the world, and here he is as a sign of comfort and paradise. All, moving forward in Luke 19, verse eight, Zacchaeus becomes a model on how you handle wealth. And Zacchaeus, 198, stood. And said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. So here is Zacchaeus showing saving faith by how he handled money, how he viewed money. And again, you can't buy your way into heaven. There'll be plenty of generous people in hell. There'll be plenty of rich people in heaven. But a reflection of a regenerate heart, of saving faith, is a desire to care for those in need. So living a life of luxury while ignoring object poverty at your doorstep is on, puts us on dangerous ground. It shows a, a spiritual dullness. It's a reflection of of our hearts. Wealth itself is not evil. God created it, therefore it is good. But this account is warning that the possession of wealth can be dangerous. So you need to handle it well, steward it well, use it in godly ways. We must be freed from the love of money, and one of those ways to free us up is to be generous towards others. Trust the Lord that he will bless and provide our needs. We must use our resources to and for God's kingdom. So this rich man became consumed and absorbed by his own joy and leisure and celebration and failed to respond to the suffering right in front of him. His callousness made him all the riches that he had in this life, all that he would ever get. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And where your money goes is where your heart goes, whether it's education or entertainment. Now, God is a good God. Those things are good. He's given us things to bless us, to reflect his goodness towards us. And he wants us to enjoy those things. But any good thing can become a bad thing when they become ultimate things. And the movement of your money is the movement of your heart. So are there reasons why we're withholding our giving? Are there reasons why we're tight-fisted with our resources? Because when we have a view of scarcity, there are underlining issues there. In Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, again, if you go back to the previous parable of the dishonest manager, they're actually uh, connected. So you have the dishonest manager and now you have uh, the rich man and Lazarus. So the dishonest manager shows the virtue of being shrewd, scheming to bless others, taking the time to plan on how to bless others. Charles Wesley uses this template of gain all you can, save all you can, so you could give all you can. You can't just pick your favorite two. But when we become too absorbed with gaining and saving without giving, that puts us on dangerous ground, and the rich man is an example of that. So if you're thinking, hey I'm not rich, I don't live in a palace and I have expensive clothes, well that doesn't mean we're exempt for being generous. The dishonest manager had little but was shrewd with his money. The rich man had much and was not shrewd with his money. Now, I don't know everybody's financial situation, so I want to be able to handle this with care. It's difficult to give broad advice when everybody's situation is different. Maybe some of you are struggling just to pay the bills, working another job, extra hours, and just trying to get by. Maybe some of us, you know, it's tax season, we file the taxes, like, I didn't know I made that much money, where did it all go? For some of us, the best thing we could do is maybe sit down with a financial advisor and walk you through some opportunities that have been missed. Maybe for some of us, it's sitting down and just writing things out, just track where it's going. So we're maximizing our resources the best way we possibly can because we care about the kingdom of God. So now, regardless of your situation, the general principle here is we are called to be generous. That's for all Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to give up our money every time we run into a homeless person. We need to exercise wisdom. We could drive ourselves into guilt-written lunacy, trying to figure out everybody's needs. There's also people who want to exploit those ready to be generous. So again, be wise. We need wisdom for this. You know, sometimes helping isn't helping. I used to work at a 7-Eleven as a teenager. And man, let me tell you, I got stories all day. Man, gang members, beer runs, unruly customers. Dom and Brian, I was trying to mooch off me. Hey, man, hook me up with a hot dog. Hook me up with a Slurpee. And I'd be like, you know we have to pay for this, right? Thanks, man. See you guys later, man. I bring that up because through that experience, I was able to cultivate a lot of relationships with homeless people. And I tell you firsthand experience, sometimes helping isn't helping. Paul tells Timothy that there are certain widows That you need to help. He also gives a description. There are certain widows you don't help. So we're not just giving indiscriminately. you got to be wise with it. At least at our church. I don't know how it's handled here. We have a deacon's fund. It's a separate account. And it's primarily used for our members and then the community at large. When there's an assistance that's applied for. We have a team of deacons that tries to filter through those requests. You need wisdom for that. Sometimes, is this a reaping-sowing principle? Or is this, hey, people have fallen on hard times, no fault of their own, and we need to step in that gap. If There's a young guy speeding down the street and gets a speeding ticket. Like, hey, man, can you pay my speeding ticket? No. Slow down. That's reaping and sowing. You got to feel that one. I'm not footing the bill on that. But if there's a family, hey, somebody lose their job. And we just need to stand in the gap for them to help them back up on their feet. Of course, let's step into that. Let's do that. So what are some principles that we could use to have a wisdom paradigm? Well, at least according to this text, I think it starts with proximity, Proximity, you notice that Lazarus is at the gate of the rich man and the rich man ignored him every day. There's no way he didn't see that. You know, I remember I was taking Theology One when I was an undergraduate at Bible University by Eric Tannis, Dom mentioned Eric. And he would always say in class, hey, God hasn't hasn't called you to fix the world's problems. Just be faithful in your sphere of influence. I remember how freeing that was. That was several years ago. And now with social media, headlines, tragic event after tragic event, you could feel the weight of like, man, what can I do? Look, we're not called to save, to fix all the world's problems. We should feel a more of a sense of responsibility to our immediate family, our extended family, our church family, and the neighbor on our block. But let us not stay there as we're being faithful in those spheres. Look to expand your sphere of influence. And you'll be amazed at when you are faithful in those areas that God does give you opportunity to expand outwards, to reach more people. And I believe this goes along the theme of Luke. In Luke 14, 13, he says this, But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although you cannot re- they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And in Luke 13, he says, there will be weeping there, the gnashing of teeth, and you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves, thrown out, people will come from the east, west, north, and south, and will take their place at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last, who will be first, and first, who will be last? Here, this imagery of being outside and seeing Abraham on the inside again. And finally, in Luke 16, he says, "No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one or love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money." So, first one, compassion to be generous. Second, count the costs. Christianity bears with it a cost. Generosity doesn't mean to vote for the government, to confiscate from the rich man, to give to the poor man. That's not compassion, at least in any biblical sense of the word. You know, if I was taking all of us out to dinner and I knew somebody else was paying the bills, like, oh, yeah, ribeyes all around. Take out the finest wine, yeah, it's on the house. But if I was paying the bills, like, whoa, whoa, wait, what? Oh, hey, hey, bring back them rib eyes, put the wine back in the cellar. It's water and house salad. That's it. It's, diff- it's different when you got to pay the bill, when you bear the cost. Biblical compassion is us bearing the cost ourselves, alleviating the suffering of others, not pawning off that responsibility to somebody else. And it goes in line with the rest of Scripture. 1 John three seventeen. but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? James goes on to say, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself, James 2, 15 through 17. Now, I remember when my wife and I started to consider adoption. And as many of you know, adoption isn't cheap. International adoption is even more expensive. You know, the biggest deterrent for me was the financial cost. That was the biggest deterrent. I was like, man, look, I got goals, all right? And this is going to dent my portfolio. I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. That people in my church are like, oh man, you got to read Russell Moore's book, Adopted Life, it'll change your life. So I read it. It was all right. Now, I'm not ragging on him or the book. If you found that book encouraging, please read it again, be encouraged again, recommend it to other people. I'm just saying for me, it didn't really move the needle for me in terms of wanting to adopt. What did absolutely changed my mind was a book that had nothing to do with adoption. It was a book by J.C. Ryle, Holiness. I think we have it up for you. And He's talking about, the, it's a chapter called The Cost. And he says this, I grant freely that it costs little to be a mere outward Christian. A man has only got to attend a place of worship twice on Sunday and be tolerably moral during the week And he has gone as far as thousands around him ever go in religion. All this is cheap and easy work. It entails no self-denial or self-sacrifice. If this is saving Christianity and will take us to heaven when we die, we must alter the description of the way of life and write, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to heaven. And he goes on and he says, but it does cost something to be a real Christian according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, and Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. Hence arises the unspeakable importance of counting The cost. You know, I read that passage and it pierced my heart. And I decided, yes, let's move forward with it precisely because it will cost us. You know, the amazing thing is God was moving in my heart in a way that says, go ahead, move forward. Let me reveal myself to you. And then, through this whole process, we're granted these generous scholarships funded by the generosity of other people. A couple at our church helped this fundraiser at Savers, their donation would go directly to this adoption fund. I remember standing there in a rainy Saturday afternoon wondering if anybody will come, and church family after church family Cleaning out their goods and donating for our cause. Family church coming together. I'll never forget that. And as a result, a child that had no home now has a home. A child that didn't have a family now has a family. And his life has changed. And our life has changed. And maybe someday his eternal destination will change. And this is how we use our temporary economy to further the kingdom of God. And once all the dust was settled, all the paperwork was done, all the bills were paid, I didn't even feel that cost. But I could hear the Holy Spirit saying, Oh, ye of little faith. I worried about the cost, and it would have cost me a son. So finally, let's be committed. We can't serve two masters. We can't serve two masters. Be committed to the Lord. Not so much our portfolio. The next section, we have the afterlife. The afterlife. and Eternity is a reality, so we must believe in the sufficiency of God's word to save. And let's be clear, we're not humanitarians seeking to promote human welfare for its own sake. No, we're Christians, disciples of Christ, called to fulfill the Great Commission. So when the rich man asked, please send Lazarus back to my brothers and warn them, Abraham said, no, that Moses and the prophets, you know, he was only talking about the Old Testament. Today, here, as new covenant Christians in the church era, we have the whole counsel of God. We have the person and work of Jesus Christ to look back on. And the sufficiency of Scripture means that we don't need any more special revelation. That we don't need any more inspired word from God. The word of God has given us the perfect standard for judging all other knowledge. All other knowledge that stands in subjugation under the revealed word of God. Our ethics, our politics, our economics, sociology, psychology, philosophy, all must bend a knee to the supremacy of Scripture. And Grudem defines the sufficiency of Scripture to mean that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemption to history, and that now it contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. And if this definition is correct, we must search the word of God for the will of God, for it's a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. He's given us his precepts, his statutes. The word of God reveals the character of God. The word of God brings clarity and conviction for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the spirit and soul of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. It also brings worship and gratitude, for the word of Christ, let it indwell you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. It's also the key to human flourishing. It's the key to human flourishing. For when we meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, we will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that's leaf do not wither, that bears fruit in its season, and in all we do we prosper. And if the rich man had listened to Moses and the prophets, he would have understood God's heart for those in need. He would have understood that Moses and the prophets were pointing to Jesus. And at the end of Luke, the road to Emmaus he even tells his own disciples, and he says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. All the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, all the scriptures concerning himself, Luke 24, 25 through 27. So then be confident in your Bible. Be confident in the supremacy and sufficiency of scripture. Evangelize the gloss because you care for them. Because judgment is real. Judgment is real. Now here, the Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a prison, a lake of fire, a place of weeping, and gnashing of teeth, a place of torment where the worm doesn't turn or die, a place of eternal separation from the blessings of God. These graphic images and eternal punishment raises the question, are these just descriptions or are they literal? Well, I would say they are descriptions and symbols, but I find no comfort in that. Because If they are symbols, we must conclude that the reality is far worse than the symbol suggests because there's nothing in human language that could accurately and completely depict what hell is. What is fully felt, the function of images and symbols, is to go beyond themselves to a higher and more intense state of realism that the symbol itself cannot encompass. The point of figurative language is to express a reality that cannot be grasped otherwise. And Jesus used the most awful symbols imaginable to describe hell should offer no comfort to anyone that simply suggests they are just mere representations and figures. The doctrine of hell should elicit in us many things. I'm only going to mention two things here. First, it should break our hearts for the loss and motivate us to confidently share the gospel. Secondly, secondly, it should move us to profound gratitude for what God has saved us from. And here, this parable has been contrasting two economic extremes, the rich man and Lazarus. So let us take a moment to contrast heaven and hell. At the end of the age where the apostle John came with this vision, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city a New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be to them their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, crying, or pain, for the former things have passed away. And the Apostle John continues, and he says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write write this down, and these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. It is finished. No more works to be added. No more propitiation needed to be made. For I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And unlike the rich man, who is denied a request of a drop of water because hell is unquenchable regret for eternity. But for those who have asked for forgiveness and placed our faith in Jesus, although we're not clothed in purple or fine linen, we are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be satisfied. And John continues, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life, without payment, because Jesus paid the cost. He bore the sins of the world, mine and yours, and the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So let let us take these truths and understand the outpouring of recognizing this reality manifests itself through the generosity of those around us and a desire to evangelize with confidence and compassion coming from a deep sense of gratitude that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. Father God, thank you. For your word, thank you that you have saved us. And may we express that thankfulness in how we care for others. In Jesus' name.